Once upon a time, there was a couple. And life, life seemed to be perfect for this couple. Everything was good. You could say, you could say this couple was blessed, right? It seemed like, it seemed like everything that they needed, seemed like everything they needed grew on trees. Just poof, and it was there. This couple, they were innocent. They had a, they had a, they were innocent, but they also had an innocence that was admirable, but also sickening at the same time. You know, maybe like Diane Chambers from Cheers or the four boys off of Stranger Things. Just an innocence about them that life, life was good. Life was perfect. Life couldn't have been better. Until one day. Until one day evil was introduced into their life. That they came across evil. You know, like when the demagogue was introduced to the four boys off Stranger Things or Sam Malone to Diane Chambers. And the innocence was gone. I make sure I hit every generation, right? Like, I don't want ever, anybody left out. Innocence was gone. Evil was introduced. And they recognized that there is something to be insecure about. They recognized that chaos was now introduced. They recognized that life, life had reason to be, to have despair over. That life could actually be hopeless and helpless. See, when Adam and Eve took of that fruit, it shattered everything. But even in the midst of that moment, even in the midst of them walking away from God, God still gave them hope. See, hope today, when we use the word hope, we use the word hope synonymous with wish. I wish upon a star. I wish one day to go to England and, 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 and attend an English Premier League game. I, I wish one day to be able to referee in the MLS. I wish, I wish, I wish, right? That when we say I hope, we really say I wish. But biblical hope is this, certainty of a better future. That's biblical hope. Biblical hope is saying that my future will certainly be better than my past or my present. That's biblical hope. When we read the word hope in the Bible, that's what it means. And so when God gave Adam and Eve hope, he gave them hope on the tail end of their sin immediately. What was that hope? Genesis 3.15 I will put hostility between you and the woman. And he's talking to the snake, the Satan. Between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he will strike your head and he, you will strike his heel. God's saying there is certainly going to be hostility between people and Satan. 
If you have a hard time believing in Satan, okay, well, there's not really that much difficulty in believing that there is some sort of evil, some sort of hostility out there that comes against us. But God gave us hope, gave Adam and Eve hope that one day there's going to be someone from the seed of woman that will step on, stomp on, squish the head of Satan, thus defeating the hostility that Satan brings. Well, since this person was going to come from the seed of the woman, well, then there's Cain and Abel next, right? Surely one of them, right? One was murdered by the other. If you're dead, you can't defeat Satan, and you can't defeat the hostility. And if you succumb to the hostility, you cannot defeat the hostility. Not them. Then there's, Mo- then, then, then there's Noah. He's introduced as there is no one more righteous on the face of the earth. Oh, maybe, maybe this is going to be him. And, and God had him build a boat because he was going to baptize the earth and cleanse it of its sin. Maybe it's him. Maybe it's him that's going to be able to defeat the hostility. But then after the flood, he steps off the boat. And the next chapter, the very next chapter, Noah is found naked and drunk in his tent like a frat boy. And it's not going to be him that was going to overcome the hostility of Satan. He succumbed to the hostility of Satan. And then we see Moses. The prince of Egypt. The one that his mother saw something special in him as a baby and floated him down the river. But he got to grow up in Pharaoh's castle. Maybe he's going to be the one, and he he knew he was going to be the one. So much so, he what? Murdered a guy. He succumbed to the hostility of Satan, and then he hid in the desert for 40 years. And then he was reluctant to even take on the mantle again to become the one to lead the people out of the land of Egypt and in the land of slavery. Moses wasn't going to be the one to defeat the hostility of Satan. He succumbed to it. And then there was the golden boy. There was David. We're introduced to him. He was a good-looking young kid. And he had an innocence about him too, right? That made his brothers and all the other troops sick. Yeah, you think you're going to defeat the Goliath? Go right ahead, pal. Have fun of this. And we find out that David's a warrior. It's going to take a warrior to, 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 to overcome, to overcome the, the, the hostility of Satan, right? And he, he is a warrior, and he's the greatest warrior that they had ever known. But then there's the Bathsheba thing and the murder of Bathsheba's husband thing. And he was, he succumbed to the hostility of Satan as well. Person after person, generation after generation, they all succumb to the hostility of Satan and they sin. And after a while, from Genesis 3:15 on through history 
If person after person and generation after generation doesn't fulfill the promise, fulfill the prophecy, what do you begin to do? You lose hope. Is God really going to bring the one that's going to defeat the hostility? So what does God do? He leaves breadcrumbs all along the way. And as time went on, and it went longer and longer and longer, he actually left more and more and more breadcrumbs of prophecy of how to spot the one that is going to come that will defeat the hostility of Satan. So how do we recognize this one that's coming? What signs did God give so that we can go, aha, he's the one. He's the one that I place my hope. He's the one that will certainly be my better future. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on these living on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. There will be a child that will be, be, that will be born. We will have a baby God. He is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God eternal father, and he is prince of peace. He will be the baby God. And he will reign on David's throne forever. But he will also break the yoke of oppression. So when, people, when, when Jesus showed up and he claimed to be the son of man, going back to Daniel's chapter 7 that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and you could go listen to that. Well, maybe not on the podcast. That might be the one that we didn't record. Uh, uh, but uh, Daniel chapter 7, the son of man, he claims to be the son of man. And people go, oh, he's going to break our oppression from Rome. He is going to set up a literal Israel again forever. And he will be our literal king for a literal forever. Yes. But see, what they didn't do is that they did not anchor the prophecy of the Messiah, prophecy of the baby God in the first prophecy of Genesis 3.15. They did not anchor it in that, that he was going to defeat the hostility of Satan. See, the hostility of Satan oppresses us. Yes, I know that we do not live and systematic oppression, cultural systematic oppression. But we all have lived in spiritual oppression. Our souls have been oppressed by the hostility of Satan. 
And we feel that deep within us. And if you don't, that's what the Bible calls a hard heart. We have suppressed it and we have placed it underneath the surface for, for, for so long that we do not even recognize that we're oppressed anymore. And it's going to hurt to bring it back up to the surface. But see, what this passage promises us is joy. Is joy. When we are oppressed, we cannot be joyful. See, joy is an inner excitement despite circumstances. The joy that God wants to give is a joy that doesn't matter about the circumstances that we find ourselves in. This is not ignoring the circumstances. This is acknowledging the circumstances, but God still gives us joy that wells deep within us. An inner excitement inside of our soul that occurs no matter what the circumstances. This is why Paul from the New Testament that wrote the New Testament later says, we grieve, but we do not grieve as one who does not have hope, right? Wherever we find our hope, we also find our joy. And if we hope in anything that is a gift of God on this world, if that is our hope, we will be disappointed that it oppresses us. And Jesus came as baby God to give us joy, a deep inner excitement no matter what the circumstances. This is why on Sunday morning, you might wake up and you go, oh, I don't know about going to service this morning. Guys, you can find God wherever and whenever, but isn't there something about finding God amongst his people that is joyful, that wells up an inner joy an inner excitement despite whatever's going on among us. Small group as well. Going, oh, today was rough. I'm not going to small group. That's when you most need it. Yes, you can find God anywhere and everywhere. You can. But aren't you more, most likely going to find him amongst his people going, keep going, keep going, keep going. He's put something in you, in your soul, an, a, an everlasting river of life, of joy, no matter what your circumstances are. We need in our culture desperately people that are joyful despite their circumstances instead of complaining despite their circumstances. We find oppression around every single corner on how every one of us are oppressed. Joyful people do not live as oppressed people because Jesus has set us free. This baby God is going to be a ruler, but there's lots of rulers. So how do we recognize this particular ruler? Micah 5, 2, Bethlehem, Ipriath. 
You are small among the clans of Judah. See, we don't understand small. We, we understand the story of Bethlehem, right? We, we know that Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem. And even if you're, 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 you're just checking out the church thing once again or for the first time, you probably know where Jesus was born. But we don't get Bethlehem and how small it was. It's like the next president coming from Chesapeake. Missouri, yeah, Missouri. Yeah, not Virginia. Missouri. Like Bethlehem was that was that road sign on the road, but then you go, where is it? Like you said, get off here to go to Chesapeake, but where is it? It's like saying our next president is going to come from there. That's that's what this is saying. This is what this is like saying that the king of Israel is going to come from this podunk spot, blip on the map. One will come from you to be the ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. The ancient of days, like we looked at again in Daniel chapter 7. The ancient of days, the one before time. See, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was saying, I am the ancient of days. This is why they picked up stones at that point in time to kill him. Because he claimed to be God. I mean, that's a bold claim. Therefore, he will abandon them until the time when she is, she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the majestic name of Yahweh his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. This baby God, he gives us hope, he gives us joy, and he gives us peace. Peace is calm in the chaos. Peace is not removal of the chaos. See, we expect removal of the chaos. God, why did you not remove this from me? And God says, I did not promise that I will remove chaos from you. I promise that I will give you calm in the chaos. When Jesus walked on water out to the disciples, the storm did not cease. He walked on stormy waves. He did not calm the chaos, or he did, not, he did not stop the chaos. He was the calm in the chaos. If we need a more modern-day explanation of this, think action hero. Just thick. Guns. I'm talking his body. With guns. And I'm talking this, the, the gun thing, Yeah. With the ammunition, you know, stuff crossed across his body. Sweat, skin just glistening. I hope none of you are lusting. Glistening. For once, maybe you're imagining me like this. But anyway, glistening as he walks through. Body torn up because of battle. Bombs exploding all around him. But he's walking straight through the fire. Just all calm. I'll go with calm. This is what God wants to do with your life. Maybe not the bod thing, okay? But this is what God wants to do with your life. Bring calm in the middle of the chaos. That's what he promised. And this baby God came in order to give us calm in the middle 
of all the chaos. Since we invented social media, we've found new ways to bring chaos into our life. <laughs> you can be the calm in the middle of the chaos. This is what God wants to do with your life and in your life. Again, he didn't promise to calm the chaos. He promised to bring you calm in the middle of it. This baby God, he's going to give us hope that we certainly can have a better future. He's going to give us joy and inner excitement. He's going to give us peace, calm in the chaos. Isaiah 53, 4. Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of the oppression and judgment and who considered his fate. For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He will see it out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous service will, servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he has submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Jesus, as John said in his prologue to his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus became flesh, or the word became flesh, and Jesus is the embodiment of the word of God. He encompasses, at that point in time, when Jesus was living, all of the Old Testament, including these verses. Let it blow your mind that the one that blew these verses into existence also went into Mary's womb to be born. He didn't speak these words and go, whoa, hold on, wait a minute. You mean that's going to be me? He still allowed himself to be born. And he wasn't going to be a king because he was the most powerful, although he is. He became king by dying. By dying. And whoever became king by dying, he died with our sin with all the hostility of Satan on his shoulders, 
but he still came as a baby God. And it also says, he didn't do this out of duty. It says, it pleased the Father to do this. What? What? This passage does not have this word in it, but there's maybe no better passage to exemplify this word. Love. Love. Because love is sacrifice for others. And not only was it sacrifice for others, it was unconditional love. It was unconditional sacrifice. I mean, what did this passage say? We will walk away like sheep. Sheep don't just walk away once and go, I'm good. They keep walking away. That's why they need a shepherd. We walk away, and we walk away, and we walk away, and we walk away, but yet, unconditionally, he loved us on the cross. God gives us hope through the baby God. He gives us joy through the baby God. He gives us peace through the baby God, and he shows us unconditional love through the baby God. Whatever we hope in, whatever we think is going to be the certainty of our better future, we think it will bring us joy and peace and love. But when we place our hope in the gifts of God that are on this earth, They are gifts of God, and they are good. But when we place our hope in them, they're going to disappoint. They're going to oppress. They're going to lead us to despair and hopelessness. And we are going to be vastly insecure because we are grasping for love. But we cannot find unconditional, true unconditional love. And whatever we we hope in, we will place our faith in. And so what do we place our faith in? 714, Isaiah 714. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Having a virgin birth wasn't some parlor trick God was doing. This was necessary. See, being born of God's seed actually gives us hope that Jesus can live a perfect life. But being born of a woman means that he stepped down to earth on the devil's playing field and beat the devil at his own game. See, the devil's game is be perfect. Jesus goes, fine. I'll see that, and I'll raise you to resurrection. Virgin birth means it is a baby God lying in that manger. And it means that we can have faith in that baby God to give us hope, give us joy, 
give us peace and to show us unconditional love, unlike we have ever experienced on the face of this earth. See, faith is seeing things the way God sees them and then acting on it. We have to see things the way God sees them. We have to see that it is only the baby God that brings us a certainty of a better future, that it is only the baby God that brings us an inner joy despite the circumstances, that it is the baby God that brings us calm in the middle of the chaos. It is only the baby God that came to give us true unconditional love and sacrifice. And that Isaiah 61 can be true. The spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, the poor in spirit, those that recognize that their spirit is bankrupt. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. When we succumb to the hostility of of, of Satan, our souls are bankrupt and we are brokenhearted and we can't fix it. To proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. When we can succumb to the hostility of Satan, we are bound to chains. But he sets us free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, and the day of our Lord God's vigilance to comfort all who mourn. We are mournful when we succumb to the hostility of Satan to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Do you feel like you're wallowing in ashes this morning? He wants to give you a crown of beauty. Festive oil instead of mourning and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. See things the way God sees them. We are broken. We are poor. We are mourning. We are in bondage. But through the baby God, he comforts us. He sets us free. He heals our broken heart. And he allows us to live in the year of Jubilee every year of our life for all eternity. See things the way God sees them and then act on it. What's the act on it? Commit. Commit to him. Commit to the baby God. Commit to hear and follow the baby God. That's it. That's every day of our lives. Those of you guys that have done that, do it today. Do it again when today, tomorrow becomes today. And when the next day becomes today, do it again. Those of you that have never done it, like, uh, I don't understand. I don't, I don't know how to hear and follow. I don't have that all figured out. Great. Neither do the rest of us. That's why we're here. We're figuring this thing out as we go. Replacing your faith in Jesus doesn't mean you got it all figured out. All you've got to figure out is that he's my only hope for a better future. He's my only joy. He's my only shot at joy, true joy. He's my only shot at peace. He's my only shot at true, unconditional love. So I will have faith in him, even though I don't have it all figured out. We're going to have a time of worship. Worship this baby God. 
If you need to talk to somebody about committing your life to him, there'll be people around to talk to you. Otherwise, worship this one who is our baby God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for coming into this earth and being the baby God. Thank you for setting up breadcrumbs along the way to show us how this was to be true. Not just in logistics, but in spirit as well. Move us. Move us to commitment. And allow us to see you work in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand with us and worship this baby God.